0: Credo Mobile is the only progressive phone company that lets you make the world a better place every time you use your phone. That's because they take a portion of their profits and give millions every year to a who's who list of nonprofits like the ACLU, the Rainforest Action Network, and they've been Planned Parenthood's top corporate donor for years. Plus, their coverage is dependable and switching is easy because you can bring your existing number with you. It's a better world for all of us and a better way to stay connected to it. So what are you waiting for? Go to credomobile.com slash bestoftheleft or... Call 800 654 3182 and you'll get two smartphones for free, plus 50% off unlimited talk and text. That's credomobile.com/slash best of the left. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Coops today from the David Packman Show, Off Kilter, formerly Talk Poverty Radio, Last Week Tonight, Making Contact, the Tom Hartman program, and Who What Why. We have
1: a new education secretary, Donald Trump's selection for education secretary, Betsy DeVos was confirmed yesterday with a historic tie breaking vote from the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence needed to break a 50 50 tie. Let's take a look at the historic moment.
2: On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50, the Senate being equally divided. The vice president votes in the affirmative and the nomination is confirmed. Majority Majority leader,
3: I move to reconsider the vote on the nomination.
1: And just like that, weeks of advocacy against this horrible, horrible choice to lead the country's education goes by the wayside. There were two Republicans that voted against Betsy DeVos's confirmation. And that's all fine. Well and good. But the real news here is that the confirmation of Betsy DeVos to education secretary proves you can buy into government power in the United States. You can, even if you have no business being there and up there by sheer virtue of having a lot of money, Betsy DeVos has no business heading up education for the United States. She was embarrassed. I don't know, three, four, five times during her confirmation hearings by Tim Kaine, by Al Franken, by Elizabeth Warren, didn't matter. And Al Franken sort of asked a key question during those hearings. Would you be here if your family hadn't donated roughly two hundred million dollars to politicians? The answer is obviously a resounding no. She is only there because of her family's political contributions. I mean, unfortunately, political patronage has been around for a long time. Uh, probably
4: peaked in the 1880s with a spoil system. But usually the contributions would be um, in exchange for like an ambassadorship or something, not something as brazen as secretary
1: of education. Yeah, I mean, Obama sold a ton of ambassadorships to the big bundlers that raised a ton of money for him. That's nothing new. But very clearly here, Betsy DeVos buying her way into the cabinet. She was asked whether she opposes guns in school. Uh, Rachel, she cited non-existent grizzly bear attacks as a reason to maybe have guns in schools she didn't agree that schools that receive federal money should have to follow the individuals with disabilities in education act this is someone who has no clue whatsoever about education she couldn't even understand really simple questions about education including from senator al franken never mind put together an even remotely informed answer she has actually admitted that her family bought influence with her donations check out something that uh she said Uh, previously, which I'll put up on the screen for you. This is from a 1997 op-ed for roll call that she wrote. My family is the largest single contributor of soft money to the national Republican party. I have decided, however, to stop taking offense at the suggestion that we are buying influence. The piece reads. Now I simply concede the point. We expect to foster a conservative governing philosophy consisting of limited government and respect for traditional American virtues. We expect a return on investment. We expect a good and honest government. Furthermore, we expect the Republican Party to use the money to promote these policies and, yes, to win elections. Well, she bought influence, Rachel. She did it. She won, I guess.
5: Yeah, she she definitely won. Uh, what I've kind of been hearing a, a lot—overwhelming response—is that a lot of parents are worried that she is going to take away the measures that are put in place for communications between parents and students, which a lot of people, I think, it, uh, Phi Delta Kappa. Um, poll said that about two thirds of uh, parents gave their public schools uh, a grade of an A or a B and then one third. It was about a C or a D. But what kind of overwhelmingly showed satisfaction was the communication. And a lot of people are worried that she's going to divert money away from putting in places AIDS and therapists who really bolster that communication. Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, she doesn't even conceptually support the concept of just funding public schools and all of those aspects are going to suffer. She wants to effectively create Christian schools. That's really what her mission is, Pat. She wants to quote advance God's kingdom. We talked about that last time we discussed Betsy DeVos and there's people writing to me saying, well, Why couldn't John McCain, increasingly the Republican voice of reason, at least vote against her? Well, she bought him too. her family, contributed over $50,000 to John McCain during the 36 year period starting in 1980. What about Marco Rubio, who sometimes is a Republican with a spine? He took a combined hundred thousand bucks from Betsy DeVos and her family did vote to confirm her that's at least partially why they didn't vote against her.
4: And we criticize Betsy DeVos because she doesn't have any experience with public schools. <laughs> but I think that's kind of the whole point. I think that's why she was uh, put put into this position, because it's very hard to get rid of a department. And the next best thing is to just put someone in charge that doesn't even agree
1: with it. To to understand this, and I wanted to touch on that next, you have to understand the position of some of the Republicans voting yes and many of their constituents. They want to destroy public education in this country. That's exactly what Betsy DeVos wants to do. The reasons are stick religion in school. That's one reason to to put Betsy DeVos in and take money away from public schools and to private schools. In that sense, it makes perfect sense that a lot of these Republicans would support her. That's how they see education, Rachel. They want public education to go that way.
5: Yeah, I'm just also thinking that her unilateral power won't even be completely strong. So she's actually in a a perfect position.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) This perpetuates the circle. You defund public schools because they're bad. They get worse because you've defunded them which then you use to justify taking even more money away. If you have here's my word of encouragement to the kids out there, stay in school kids. If you have 200 million dollars and you're at all worried, you might not be able to be, I don't know, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development because you don't know anything about it. Betsy DeVos's uh, riches to riches story. Can be a huge inspiration for you because the 200 million bucks can get you into the cabinet damn it pat you can do it too that's the american (laughs) dream isn't it (laughs) yeah basically is buying power with money you've inherited from your family
6: Betsy DeVos has been confirmed as Secretary of Education of the United States, but it's not just grizzly bears anymore. The real work begins. So to help me unpack what DeVos's confirmation as Education Secretary means for education policy and our nation's students, I've got with me Katherine Brown. She's the Vice President of
7: Education and Related Things here at the Center for American Progress. Katherine, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so- so excited to be here on Talk Poverty Radio.
6: So I, I'm, I'm making light of things. I mentioned the grizzly bear piece. Um, there, there, there were a lot of entertaining moments in the last several weeks leading up to DeVos's confirmation. But it wasn't all entertainment. I mean, there's actually a lot of. We should be appropriately serious here. Remind us who is Betsy DeVos? What's her background? What do we know about her?
7: That's right, Rebecca. I mean, a lot of us in the education policy community watched in horror during her confirmation hearing. It wasn't entertaining at all to see that she really didn't know basic information about uh, education policy and some of the most important laws that govern our schools in our country, like the Individuals for Disabilities in Education Act. She is she's definitely um, an outside the beltway choice. She's been a lobbyist for school vouchers for most of her career in education. She's a billionaire. Um, and she has served on the board of the American Federation of Children and, and in that role served as a philanthropist and invested tremendous amounts of money in, uh, in state legislator races and advocacy campaigns, mostly designed at privatizing public schools. She's never managed a large organization. She's never worked in public schools. She's never sent a children to public schools. She herself has never attended public schools. So she is uh, really uh, an unusual selection for this job of overseeing. Our nation's public school system. Unusual being a diplomatic word. I, I commend you
6: for <laughs> toning down a lot of the things I'm sure you could have said. Um, but you mentioned a, a, a few threads there. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna focus so much on the pay-to-play allegations, um, her family's wealth, and you know, did she effectively buy this position? I'm not gonna focus um, on on kind of some of those aspects, although they have been raised and there are serious allegations there. But I do want to focus on some of the policy positions that either she has taken or that we believe from her background she may take. So you mentioned vouchers, and I want to start there. Um, it's a word that gets thrown around in a lot of contexts, including in the education conversation and debate. But help us understand what is the voucher proposal when it comes to um, uh, to, to education policy? Who does it potentially help? Who would lose out? Give us the background?
7: Yeah, I mean, vouchers take a lot of different forms, so it's a good question that you're asking. At its base, what a voucher policy is, is money that either goes to parents, to children themselves, to corporations, or to individuals who are funding what are often called scholarship programs, and they allow students to take those resources and exit the public school system and go to a private school. That's really what we're talking about here. They're often framed as a way to help students from low-income communities who are zoned for failing schools to exit and go to higher-performing schools. Um, But what we've seen from the research is, A, they don't actually lead students who get the vouchers to go to higher performing schools. That's been found overwhelmingly over decades of research on these policies. And what they do do is leave schools that have um, higher concentrations of kids living in poverty, kids with disabilities, kids with special needs, um, stuck in higher need public school systems. So, uh, you know, overall, the people that they really disadvantage are exactly the students that the rhetoric would lead you to
6: believe that they're helping. And they often get framed is about school choice. It's providing families, providing students with choice. Are there concerns about what the sort of macro results would be, not just the students who get left behind, but what a a scaled up voucher policy could mean for our public education system writ large?
7: Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the other concerns that doesn't get raised enough is the fact that private schools don't have the same civil rights laws and the same responsibilities to serve kids with special needs. So, for example, private schools select the students that attend their schools. They can say, no, we're not going to have this student. And that often is going to be the students that are coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds that have greater needs. Um, They don't often have special services to support those kids and they can expel kids um, if they have behavioral problems or other issues. So what what you're left with is a system that is, um, you know, abandoning the kids who most need to have a high quality option because that is their chance at, at succeeding in life.
6: While pretending to be a policy that helps those students. Exactly. You also mentioned the, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a, a federal law, which if in case Secretary DeVos is listening, will help her understand what it is, a federal law that ensures it, it actually requires that all students in this country, including students with disabilities, um, are entitled to a free and appropriate uh, public education, just like all other students, um, sometimes called a FAPE, free and appropriate public education, to help Betsy DeVos remember that one next time she's asked about it. Um, so what uh, might DeVos's confirmation and her uh, leadership at the uh, Department of Education mean for students with disabilities in this country?
7: Well, I think that's a great question. And we did not get a lot of insights into how she would uh, handle this particular enforcement of this incredibly important law, uh, which, as you say, is one of the most major education laws in this country. It serves 6.5 million children, provides $11 billion a year in education funding. Um, she didn't know that it was actually a set of requirements that was not optional. What she said at her hearing is that she thought states could decide whether or not to, uh, to enforce the IDEA Act. I think that comes from her advocacy in vouchers. Because the other thing we know about vouchers, which I should have mentioned earlier, is that students with disabilities often have to sign away their rights to that are protected under IDEA when they sign up for a voucher program and it, it can be kind of insidious. Sometimes the districts don't make clear that you're signing away your rights when you uh, enter this program. So I think that's uh, the view that she's taking when she's thinking about IDEA, but it's really troublesome because there are millions of students that rely on these protections for a free and appropriate public education, as you say. Um, and uh, you know they're likely to get left behind under her vision, though we don't really know. I mean, she was very unclear about what she was going to do when she became Secretary of Education. She was very evasive, and it's it's worth doing
6: a little bit of a um, a kind of a, a getting in a time machine for a moment and thinking back to what uh, education looked like for students with disabilities before the IDEA was in place. I know if we had a number of my um, friends and colleagues in the disability community here speaking with us right now, that many of them would actually recount personal experiences and experiences of their parents um, and of their colleagues in literally being denied education, being told. That they could not uh, actually attend school, um, not being mainstreamed, not being put in classes where that they would be um, more than capable of, of performing right alongside other students, um, but instead being treated differently and being effectively segregated out of, of public education in this country. And that's what Betsy DeVos appears completely unaware of.
7: That's right. Uh, one of my first exposures to this was uh, I worked for for then Senator Hillary Clinton when she was a senator from New York. And she often would tell the story about her first job out of law school when she worked for the Children's Defense Fund. And she worked in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And one of the things that she did was to walk door to door, interview families and identify parents of kids with disabilities and try to reconcile why were there more kids living in these communities than there were enrolled in the schools and that the differential was students with disabilities who were systematically being told by their schools, oh, we can't serve you, oh, your needs are too great, oh, we can't help you. And often these were kids in wheelchairs or kids with physical disabilities that had absolute, you know, high abilities to, to fulfill their potential if they could just make accommodations in the physical facility. And so IDEA has made a huge difference in those kids' lives. We know that those kids now have access, are, are required to have access to, um, to, to, a, to a free, high-quality education. And we've seen tremendous um, improvements in their outcomes even in the last 15 years.
0: If you've ever hired a new employee, then you know the hassle it can turn into, posting your job listing to over a hundred job sites. But it doesn't have to be that way. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to all those sites, plus social media networks, with a single click and then manage the flow of qualified candidates in ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. They also have a knowledge base full of helpful information on finding your next great employee. My favorite is a report they wrote about the effects of using gendered keywords in your postings. It turns out you'll actually get fewer applicants if you use gendered keywords like strong and competitive or polite and pleasant, all of which come with a gendered subtext. Using gender-neutral terms such as focused, professional, and courteous results in a larger and more diverse group of applicants. I learned all of that from ZipRecruiter. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses, and right now, my listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com free trial. Trial. That's ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com slash free trial.
8: Critics argue charters overstate their successes, siphon off talented students, and divert precious resources within a school district. Now, for this piece, and I know this is going to make some people on both sides very angry, we're going to set aside whether or not charter schools are a good idea in principle, because whether they are or not, in 42 states and D.C., we're doing them. So instead, we're going to look at how they operate in practice. One group found, on average, charters had a slight edge over traditional public schools in reading and did about the same in math, but acknowledged charter quality is uneven across the states and across schools. And that is putting it mildly, because around the country, there have been charter schools so flawed, they don't make it through the school year.
9: This charter school suddenly closed its doors in the middle of the day.
10: An Orange County charter school suddenly closed its doors without notice. The local charter school is suddenly and unexpectedly closing its
5: doors. On our dining room table, my son left these two notes to us. One says, Dear Mom, is the school going out of business?
8: Yes, yes, you are right. That kid spelled business, biznos, which I'd argue is a much better way to spell it. Now, now that, that school was actually shut down just six weeks into the school year. So, to be honest, they probably should have been much better at business. And, and charters in some states can have an alarming failure rate. Two years ago, a Florida paper found that since 2008, 119 charter schools had closed there, 14 of which had never even finished their first school year. So 14 schools in Florida were outlasted by NBC's Mysteries of Laura, (laughs) a show which once ended an episode like this. I have a hot date tonight. With who? Threesome,
10: actually.
8: joke about her f***ing children! (laughs) It was in the first season, and they gave her another one! (laughs) But the point is, when schools close that fast, it's shocking, because you would assume someone would rigorously screen a school before it was allowed to open, making sure it was financially and academically sound. But that is not always the case. Take Florida's Ivy Academies, which shut down after just seven weeks due to a lack of, among other things,
6: a school. The schools were repeatedly kicked out of their buildings, shuttled students among multiple sites including the Signature Grand Reception Hall in Davie, two local churches in Fort Lauderdale and Holiday Park. They also bused students on daily field trips because they didn't have enough classrooms.
8: Daily field trips? How's that even possible? Surely by day 10 you've run out of ideas and are taking kids to Marshalls to return a belt. Hey, pretty, pretty great, right kids? I'll probably get store credit, so put on your adventure hats. We're about to go on a magical $12 scavenger hunt. (laughs) So how did those schools get approved? Well, Florida's charter process begins with a lengthy application, and Ivy Academies was 400 pages long. And their founder, Trayvon Mitchell, included passages like this one, beginning, instruction is scaffolded to provide targeted support with the goal of increasing independence. It goes on, and it sounds great, but weirdly, we found... This application by a school called Franklin Academy in Fort Lauderdale, which predates that by two years and which features this passage, which begins, instruction will scaffold and then continues in almost exactly the same way. It's basically identical, but for a few small differences, like the Olsen twins. I mean, you know, you know, one of them came first and then Mary Kate plagiarized her face. (laughs) Now, that behavior might not be illegal, but it's certainly unethical. Or, if I may quote from the Ivy Academy handbook, you will not plagiarise works that you find on the internet. (laughs) Plagiarism is taking the ideas or writings of others and presenting them as if they were yours. So the application for Mitchell's school would also have been grounds for him getting thrown out of that school. (laughs) And incidentally, that's not the only thing he may have stolen. He has since been accused of spending funds for students on himself and is awaiting trial for grand theft. And the problem with the approval process being too easy is... There is a lot at stake in charter schools. They get paid on a per student basis. On average, that's about $7,000 for every enrolment. And that adds up. Take Philadelphia's Harambee Charter School. I know, I know, they named it a long time ago. And it's spelled differently, you fing monsters. Rest in peace. Now, that school, that school received more than five. Million dollars in taxpayer money—the uh, same year that this
0: story emerged. By day, the Harambee Institute Charter School looks like any other, educating some 450 students from kindergarten through eighth grade. But by night, the cafeteria turns into Club Damani a bar that authorities say is unlicensed and illegal.
2: Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold
8: on. I had a couple of shots of rock. I'm drunk right now. Wow. A nightclub in an elementary school is a recipe for disaster because those are the two most vomit-prone populations in the world. They must have had to Febreze the shit out of that place. Now, you'll be glad to hear uh, that that school's under new leadership now, although that might be because its CEO pled guilty to fraud for embezzling nearly $80,000 from the Harambee Institute. Rest in peace. And and look, you can say that's an isolated incident, but it isn't. In Philadelphia alone, at least ten executives, or top administrators, have pled guilty in the last decade to charges like fraud, misusing funds, and obstruction of justice. Which may be why Philly Magazine advises parents, don't forget to Google any schools you're looking at to make sure they weren't once unexpectedly shut down or run by a CEO who pleaded guilty to theft. All of which speaks to a general atmosphere perhaps best articulated by the state auditor.
9: I've said it before, and I will say it again. Pennsylvania has the worst charter school law in the
0: United States.
8: That is not good, because it is not like having the worst something is new for Pennsylvania. Remember, this is a state that has the worst football fans, the worst bell, and the worst regional delicacy. Yes! (laughs) If I wanted cheese Whiz on my steak sandwich, I'd eat at Kitty Cafeteria, the restaurant run by six-year-olds. <laughs> and, and I'm not even sure Pennsylvania deserves to be called the worst, because Ohio's charter law was for decades so lax, even charter advocates have called it the Wild West. The state has around 360 charters, and their governor, John Kasich, speaks often about how much he
9: loves choice and competition in schools we will improve the public schools if there's a sense of competition. It's just like a, a, a pizza shop in the town, if there's only one and, uh, and there's not much pepperoni on it, you can call till you're blue in the face. But the best way to get pepperoni, on, more pepperoni on that pizza is to open up a second pizza shop. And that's what's gonna improve our public schools.
8: Okay, okay. That doesn't work on any level. First, no one has ever called it a pizza shop. Second, it's a little hard to hear the man who just defunded Plant Parenthood talk about the importance of choice. Third, there's such a thing, there is such a thing as paying for extra pepperoni like a normal person. And finally, the notion that the more pizza shops there are, the better pizza becomes is effectively undercut by the two words Papa John's. But, but Ohio's charters... I've had huge problems with lack of oversight. A review of one year's state audits found charters misspent public money nearly four times more often than any other form of taxpayer-funded agency. And some cases are incredible, like that of Lisa Hamm, a school superintendent who was accused of spending money for her school on spas, jewelry, luggage, plays, veterinary care, and trips to Europe and to see Oprah. (laughs) She took a plea deal without admitting guilt, but not before delivering this fantastic explanation.
7: Proverbs says, without vision, people perish. And it's very important for people to have a vision for their own lives. And in order to do that, they need to experience what's possible in life. And in order to transfer that to the children, they have to experience it themselves. That is
8: amazing! She's just spouting a bunch of vague bullshit about inspiration, crossing her fingers and hoping people will buy it. And you know what? When you put it like that, I feel like she has learned a lot from Oprah. Money well spent. (laughs) Oh, and incidentally, for the record, when she quoted Proverbs saying, where there is no vision, the people perish, she's leaving out the very next line, which is, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. (laughs) And that's a f***ing important caveat. And what's crazy is there are ways to profit off of charter schools perfectly legally in Ohio, and there have been for years. Look at this episode of Frontline from 2000.
3: By law, charter schools must be non-profit, but the schools can hire
8: an educational management company, or EMO, to run the school, and the EMO can try to make a profit. Brennan calls his EMO White Hat Management.
10: Education is first, last, and always a business. If it's run like a business, it can be done profitably.
8: Yes, education is first, last, and always a business. Take the L off the word learning, and what do you got? Earning. (laughs) Take the E off it, what do you got then? Arning. Yeah, sure, that's not a word, but it could be in one of our English classes. (laughs) Now... That man's company, White Hat Management, worked under contracts where each charter would pay 95 percent or more of its government funding to White Hats, which as a private company isn't obligated to provide the same level of transparency as, say, a school district. So taxpayers could have little idea how that money was being spent. And who can say if that's a good system or not? All I know is White Hat ran 32 of the lowest performing schools in the state. And if you do essentially the same terrible thing more than 30 times in a row, you're not a management company. You're basically Billy Joel's greatest hits Volumes 2 and 3. <laughs> and at this point, you may be thinking charters were completely unmonitored. But that is where you would actually be wrong. Because they are uh, approved and overseen by what are called authorizers. And while some states sharply limit who can be an authorizer, Ohio allowed many different groups, including non-profits, to do it. Meaning... Well, let's say I wanted to open the John Oliver Academy for Nervous Boys. <laughs> and, and let's say I had a pre existing nonprofit called Johnny's Kids. That could potentially have overseen my school. And that basically happened. Take the Richard Allen chain of schools in Ohio, whose president was a woman called Jeanette Harris. They were overseen by Kids Count, a nonprofit founded by Jeanette Harris which oversaw the schools as they spent a million tax dollars on management and consulting firms founded by, wait for it, Jeanette f***ing Harris. Now, Harris denies a conflict of interest because she claims she wasn't directly involved in decision-making, and maybe, maybe the schools just chose Kids Count because it had a proven track record of great oversight. So let's, let's just check in on one of the other schools they oversaw.
11: A local charter school padded its attendance records, resulting in more than a million dollars in extra money. State
7: auditors interviewed
6: students and staff. Their findings show that on any given day, there would only be about 30 students in the building. A fraction of the reported 459 enrolled
8: there. Oh, it gets worse, because when an auditor looked into it, they found Kids Count had done the legal minimum oversight required, which I would argue suggests a problem with the legal minimum, because 30 kids showed up, and the school claims they had 450, which doesn't speak well of an oversight group calling itself Kids Count. (laughs) Now, Now, Ohio has passed a new law. To try and clean up some of the problems you've seen. But serious damage has already been done. And incredibly, there is one more way that charter schools around the country have been allowed to run wild. Because we haven't even mentioned online charters yet. They serve 180,000 students. And even if they just get the average $7,000 per student, that's over a billion dollars in taxpayer money going to cyber charters annually. And some have an attendance system you would not fucking believe.
5: Sometimes kids aren't counted absent until they have failed to log on for five days in a row, and some are never required to attend class. But the state still requires the schools to report attendance, so most just report 100%, even though that's not what's really going on. That's just crazy. You're
8: basically giving kids a box containing video games, pornography, and long division, and claiming 100% of them chose the right one. And, and look, Some kids might need online education, but it has got to be monitored better because one major study found, compared to kids in traditional public schools, students in online charters lost the equivalent of 72 days of learning in reading and 180 days in math during the course of a 180-day school year. And 180 minus 180 is, as those kids might put it, three. Now, (laughs) charter advocates will tell you That even they are concerned about online schools. And they'll argue some states have much better oversight than the ones that we've seen. And that is true. Though, for the record, some may even be worse. One charter researcher told Ohio, be very glad that you have Nevada, so you are not the worst. (laughs) Which I believe is the motto on Nevada State License Plates. But the point is, we don't even have time to get into Nevada. And advocates will argue all these closings show accountability in action. Just like in business, bad schools close. But there's a f***ing problem there, as one former charter school employee explains.
1: This isn't just a regular business, this isn't a restaurant that you just open up, you serve your food, people don't like it, you close it, and you move on. This is education, this is students are getting left in the middle of the year without a school to go to. So I just think that there needs to be some filter as to who's opening up these charter schools.
8: Exactly. The problem with letting the free market decide when it comes to kids is that kids change faster than the market. And by the time it's obvious the school is failing, futures may have been ruined. So if we are going to treat charter schools like pizza shops, we should monitor them at least as well as we do pizzerias. It's like the old saying, give a kid a shitty pizza, you f*** up their day. Treat a kid like a shitty pizza, you could f*** up their entire life.
10: Within a week of President Donald Trump's inauguration, members of Congress introduced HB 610, the Choices in Education Act. The bill would take federal money that goes to the schools and communities that need it the most and require states to implement voucher programs that allow parents to use it for private schools, religious schools or homeschooling. Kevin Kumashiro is former dean of education at the University of San Francisco and founder of Education Deans for Justice and Equity. He says whether or not this particular bill passes, it's a harbinger of what's to come under President Donald Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos.
4: What we're hearing both in terms of rhetoric and in terms of proposed policies are really going to be quite destructive to public education. They are about doing away with the federal role in advancing civil rights in education. It's about using funds to fuel the privatization of public schools. But A lot of the things that we're hearing currently at the federal level are actually not brand new. I mean, in some ways, what we're seeing with Trump and Betsy DeVos, the new secretary of education, it might be shocking to some, but it's actually building on decades and even the most recent years under the Obama administration to move us towards marketizing and privatizing public education, to move us towards more school choice, to in some ways overregulate, to in some ways underregulate. So I think this is our challenge, is when we try to name the landscape, we need to actually recognize that there's a history that brought us here and that the picture is incredibly complex.
10: That history takes us to 1965. The civil rights movement was winning the battle of ideas, and in response, Lyndon Johnson had declared a war on poverty. A key part of it was passing the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or the ESEA. And now within the past three weeks, the House of Representatives, by a vote of 263 to 153, and the Senate, by a vote of 73 to 18, have passed the most sweeping educational bill ever to come before Congress. It represents a major new commitment of the federal government to quality and equality in the schooling that we offer our young people. That bill created the framework for how the federal government would engage in education.
4: So when we study the history of U.S. schooling, of public schools in the United States, we tend to break up into periods, you know, chunks of time. And there's a period from around the 1950s to the 1980s that many historians called the Federal Era era. In U.S. schooling. And it's called the federal era because that's the decades when the federal government began to assert a lot more influence over public education. It wasn't really about micromanaging. It wasn't about telling states and districts everything that they need to do. It was a very specific role that they were playing. And that is to advance civil rights by leveraging federal funds to push states and districts to comply. So what characterizes a lot of what was happening particularly in the 60s and 70s, was a series of federal legislation that was doing exactly that. It was basically compelling states and local districts to follow civil rights, non-discrimination legislation, and principles by leveraging federal funding as kind of the carrot or the incentive. So Elementary and Secondary Education Act, it's addressing in Title One. it's addressing students in poverty. Title Three. it's addressing English language learners. And you have the Bilingual Education Act, you have the Higher Education Act, you have the Civil Rights Act, you have the what eventually became the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And all of these are really the federal government saying, we need to recognize that public schools are falling short in serving some of the most underserved of populations. And so our role is to come in and direct federal funding to try to address the populations that are most falling through the cracks. And this is what I think is so concerning about the recent movement by the federal government
10: in 2001 no child left behind was enacted on the one hand it reauthorized the esea but on the other it shifted the role that the federal government would play in education
4: i was saying earlier that there's this period from the 50s to the 80s called the federal period okay well historians also call the period from the 80s till Today, the standards-based reform period or the standards and accountability period. And it's because there are ideas that emerged, particularly from some of the foundational entities of the conservative and neoliberal movements, like the business roundtable, right? The top 300 CEOs of corporations from the United States that have turned their attention to public education policy. And what then became influential from the Reagan administration, really right up until now, is this idea that the way you improve education is you delineate, you articulate a set of standards, and then you hold schools accountable for meeting those standards as measured by these really narrow standardized tests. And so high stakes decision making increasingly became a centerpiece of federal policy and therefore of national policy. And so we were moving in this direction, this kind of narrow way of thinking about, I mean, who can argue with having high standards, but you can argue with narrowly defining what those standards are and how we measure and then what the consequences are. It became this very narrow test and punish, test and punish kind of policy that really you see roots, rhetorically at least, with the Reagan administration. It continued with Clinton, but No Child Left Behind really brought this to life. And then, of course, under Obama, you have race to the top. And moving us even more towards high stakes testing is a very, as you pointed out, it's a very different role that the federal government has played when you compare it to the, from the 50s to the 80s, right, which is much more about ensuring that we're addressing issues of diversity equity. Now we're actually kind of telling states what to teach, uh, how to measure, whether or not that's been taught. And I think that it is not surprising that when Congress reauthorized ESEA, that was one of their kind of points of obsession, was really recognizing that maybe the federal government has gone too far in the direction of high-stakes testing. We need to change that.
10: Kevin Kumashiro says we're still in this period of standards and high-stakes testing not just in the United States, but around the world.
4: Globally. This is what's happening in education, right? High-stakes testing, narrowing the curriculum, marketizing and privatizing education, all of these things are interlinked not only here in the United States, but around the world as we look at what some of the trends are. There's a point of hope, which is that communities and the professions are really fighting back against a lot of these changes. A few years ago, when the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike, it got a lot of national attention. But what was interesting was at that very moment, in half a dozen countries around the world, there were other very high-profile professional actions going on by teachers not who were fighting over their contracts, but who were fighting to push back against these really problematic reforms coming down the pipe that they were saying were making it impossible to really teach.
10: In other countries, these reforms went beyond high-stakes standardized tests. As the global recession sank in, governments had less money for public resources and faced pressure to privatize their education systems. Private companies offered to partner with public schools or offer low-fee public education. Some also saw education as a market that they could extract profit from. In the United States, wealthy individuals and foundations directed similar efforts at states and local school districts.
4: We're going to see not only pushes to expand school choice and voucher programs. But more specifically, I also think we're going to see a push to liberalize our ability to charterize a district. In other words, to convert a whole bunch of neighborhood public schools into charter schools. Donald Trump um, was calling to expand school choice by diverting a lot of money into vouchers. Betsy DeVos is known for really spearheading the voucher reform initiatives in Michigan. And what we're hearing is that Um, you know, there's a series of research reports that was released in the last year and a half that actually tells us that in states where they were experimenting with voucher programs, we now have some very recent and rich data that shows that students who took advantage of the vouchers actually, in many instances, were performing less well. They were getting less education than students in the regular neighborhood public schools. So the idea that everything will improve If you can just treat it like a marketplace where competition is going to drive innovation and hard work, that is a, is not just an objective truth. That actually is an ideology. It's rooted in what's called neoliberal ideology, right? That marketplaces solve all of our problems. You know, the reality is competition sometimes does make us work harder, but anyone who's been in a classroom will know that sometimes competition can so get in the way of learning and cooperative learning can actually make a really big difference.
2: The trouble with schools is they always try to teach the wrong lesson. Believe me, I've been kicked out of enough of them to know. They want you to become less callow, less shallow. But I say, why invite stress?ing Stop studying strife and learn to live the unexamined
9: this is from 1981 november of 1981 so this would have been at the end of the of reagan's first year in office and it's by terry herndon now, i was just you know we just had this debate about about public schools and i was just talking about you know reaganomics and how listen to this this is this is the new york times you can google this easily it's the the headline is is public education a casualty of reaganomics the author is terry herndon h-e-r-n-d-o-n it was published november 15 1981 in the new york times as the price of reaganomics becomes clear americans are becoming edgy teachers are downright nervous we who are the true believers in public education are nearly frantic In the big budget fight of 1980, we saw the president strive for a 30% reduction in federal aid to education, but were heartened as Congress paired the cut to less than 10%. Uh, We saw the horrendous cut in subsidies for school lunches and thought, well, the president just doesn't understand. When the Congress went home, we traveled the nation and found school districts buffeted by the quadruple whammy of federal cuts, state tax ceilings, loss of state revenue from taxes, and hostility to property taxes. They responded by laying off personnel, enlarging classes, simplifying curriculum, using obsolete material, and taking other steps. All of which reduced parent and student satisfaction. Remember my my referring to David Stockman and his start. The strategy was had a name actually. It's called starve the beast. You starve the beast until it's broken, then you say, Hey, it's broken, and then you say, Here's a replacement for it. And you know, yeah, you know, it's going to make somebody a whole bunch of money, but it's a good replacement. Okay, back in Washington. Uh, November 1981, first year of the Reagan presidency. The president has now demanded new cuts beyond his original proposal. He's called for the elimination of the Department of Education, has reiterated his support for tax credits for private school tuition. Public education is not an inadvertent casualty of Reaganomics, but rather economics has become the weapon used on a chosen target. The administration's disdain for public enterprise now aims at the public school system. And it goes on, you know, quote, Milton Friedman, the economist, asserts that public schools are an island of socialism and a free market sea. And, uh, end of quote. The new right is full of ultra-conservatives who believe with Mr. Friedman that public schools threaten the no-holds-barred free enterprise they see as the true essence of American life. And then they go to the Heritage Foundation. You know, homogenized this reaction to public education earlier this year in a sophisticated briefing book for the incoming Reagan administration. David Stockman, the director of the budget, quickly hailed the the Heritage Foundation's recommendations as, quote, a blueprint for the policy options available to us if we are to meet the challenges of the 1980s, end quote. Ed Meese III said he's going to rely heavily on it. Consider the impact of the Heritage Foundation's game plan for education. And then here's the bullet points from the Heritage Heritage Foundation's game plan for education, 1981. This is the New York Times. Bullet point. Eliminate federal support for public education. The president wants to wipe out more than 90 percent of current federal education spending by 1984. Next one. Use the president's pulpit, the presidential pulpit, to inflame passions regarding prayer in the schools, sex education, censorship, creationism, and other issues that complicate the politics of publicly financed schooling. This adds to dissatisfaction. Number three. Grant tax credits for tuition to private schools. Tax credits are the keystone to establishing a subsidized free market, in parentheses, private school system that will leave the public schools with all the problems and none of the resources. And number four, destroy the Department of Education and thereby assure that there will never be a serious institutional advocate for public education within the federal infrastructure. The, the, he, he, he writes, the Reagan attack on the public school system enjoys popularity with much of his zealous constituency, even if it's only a small minority of the American people. However, with the power of the presidency working for them, this minority is a substantial contemporary threat to our public school tradition. And, you know, it must be exposed and it must be stopped. This is the deeper meaning of the Reagan administration's education agenda. Amen. A uh, brilliant piece is Public Education a Casualty of Reaganomics by Terry Herndon in November 15, 1981
2: New York Times. It's not the right to be sober. Now the idiots have taken over spreading like a social cancer. The industrial revolution has flipped the fish on evolution. The benevolent wise are being pointed out to size. What a bummer! The world keeps getting dumber. Its sensitivity is standard. And faith is being fancied of
0: If you haven't heard about Bill H.R. 610, which includes the Choices and Education Act of 2017 and the sick and ironically named No Hungry Kids Act, you need to get it on your radar. This bill, introduced by Representative Steve King from Iowa, would not only defund our public education system as we know it, but literally remove any and all nutritional requirements for food provided to poor children, all in the name of school choice. Luckily, while in committee, the bill has stalled, so why are we talking about it today? Because this is just the first draft, an inside look, if you will, at what the Republicans want to do to public education, King's bill is Betsy DeVos's dream, and rest assured that this bill, wrapped in sheep's clothing and a new name, will be what comes to the House floor for a vote in the near future. H.R. 610 basically reduces the role of the Department of Education down to a block grant distributor by repealing the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 and establishes an education voucher program. States are only qualified to receive the federal education block grants if they comply with the education voucher program requirements and make it lawful for parents to choose to send their child to any public or private school in the state— Or to be homeschooled. This cripples the entity in charge of setting and enforcing national education standards, including anti discrimination and programs to help children with learning disabilities. It also sends your tax dollars away from public schools and into the coffers of private, religious, and charter schools, which aren't held to the same standards as public schools. In short, this is the privatization of education. The second part of this bill has the audacity to repeal nutrition standards for the national school lunch and breakfast programs. Apparently, Republicans feel we can't be wasting money on making sure poor children eat food that might help them stay healthy, become strong, and able to focus better in the classroom. We can get ahead of bills like this by speaking up now and drawing attention to the damage this kind of legislation would do. That's why your action today is to call Congress and tell them you oppose voucher programs, depletion of nutrition standards for recipients of free and reduced lunch programs, and any bill remotely similar to H.R. 610. Get involved on the national and local level by joining up with the Network for Public Education led by Diane Ravitch, who you'll be hearing from in the next clip. Head over to networkforpubliceducation.org to sign up for their newsletter and be sure to follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Network4PubEd. That's Network, the number four, PubEd. You can also use the hashtag #SaveOurSchools Our Schools to join the education conversation online. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if saving public education is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about stopping legislation that kills public education and hurts poor children via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. It may take a village to raise a child, but it's gonna take the resistance to protect their education. Activism.
5: Activism. Mm-hmm. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self imposed media prison.
7: There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down civil war, intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. Spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage
3: with action? Given the state of education policy today, the degree to which it has has changed under the Obama administration with Race to the Top and the various things that were done, how much damage can be done by the Federal Department of Education with somebody like Betsy DeVos running it?
11: I think that uh, the damage can be very considerable. Uh, A state like California might be able to shield itself by saying no, uh, because she's obviously going to devolve a lot of power to states. But in the meanwhile, uh, most of the states in this country are controlled by Republicans who are as hard right as she is. And so we may see uh, half the country moving towards uh, disestablishing public education and replacing it with, vouchers for religious schools, and frankly, there are not enough religious schools in the whole country to accommodate all of the uh, children who would get vouchers under under the proposal that Donald Trump has made. So we would see uh, fly by nights uh, operating in church basements uh, and fly-by-night charters that pop up overnight. Uh, the state of Michigan has uh, many charters, hundreds of charters, and the charters in Michigan do worse than the regular public schools. Uh, Detroit which is overrun with charters and overrun by the way with for-profit charters I I don't think that California has now California does have some for-profit charters but um Michigan 80% of the charters in Michigan are for profit uh so it's a terrible unregulated uh sector and the Detroit Free Press ran a a year-long investigation in which they said the charter industry in Michigan spends a billion dollars a year of taxpayer money with no accountability and it gets worse results in the public schools. So I think that if we take Betsy DeVos's example of Michigan, we're talking about the the, the dumbing down of American education uh, and the ruination of good public schools.
3: What does this mean for things like Common Core and some of these local funding formulas that have been put in place over the past several years?
11: Well, I, I don't think that she will have much effect on Common Core. Donald Trump used that as an applause line when he was running for office, that it's a disaster, he'll get rid of it. Uh, actually, Common Core is once it was created and and it was shoved into the states by Arne Duncan because Arnie Duncan said I have a five million dollar pot of discretionary money here and if you want to be eligible to apply you have to adopt the Common Core so something like forty five states went along and adopted the Common Core in hopes of getting a part of that five billion dollars uh, only eighteen states got uh, the, the the money he was offering. Uh, but then 45 were stuck with the Common Core. Now, th- these states can get rid of the Common Core if they want to. It's not really a federal issue anymore. And the, the education, uh, department, uh, the person who's in charge of it can't say to states, don't use the Common Core because, uh, he or she, and she in this case, doesn't have that authority. Uh, as it happens, Betsy DeVos is a supporter of the Common Core. And I've seen several names, uh, like Hannah Scandira, who's, now the chief education officer in New Mexico, who is an avid supporter of the Common Core. So every name that's been proposed for uh, the Trump administration's Department of Education is a huge supporter of Common Core. So this is just another one of Trump's lies.
3: Talk a little bit about funding and the impact that it can have on states that that might resist some of the changes, states like California, as you mentioned before, that might resist some of the changes trying to be made.
11: The the nature of the... um, What what they want to do with funding is Donald Trump said during the campaign that he would take $20 billion of existing federal funding and offer it to the states as, uh, you can do with this money what you wish, uh, but it'll be targeted for vouchers or or charters or any other use you want to make, cyber schooling. Uh, So many states will take this money and say, oh great, instead of spending it on poor kids, I will spend it on opening up more charters and offering vouchers. Um, I think that if California doesn't want to do that, it won't have to do it. You can continue your present funding formula but what he's what he's trying to do is to take existing federal funding that has a specific purpose one to help poor kids and to go directly to those schools where they're enrolled and two i believe he'll also be dipping into money for special education and kids with disabilities because he's got he's didn't say he was going to spend new money on education so he's t- those are the two pots of money that he can raise and say this is money going to the states and it's going to be turned into money to be used for charters or vouchers. And presumably they might even include public schools as one of the choices you're allowed to make. So if, if a state like California says, we don't want what you're offering, uh, that money could be used for more charter schools. I mean, California already has more charter schools than any other state. Uh, and frankly I I think the state has too many charter schools and not as in every state not enough supervision. I spoke with your uh head of the state department of education Tom Turlex and I asked him what kind of supervision are you able to provide and he said we we simply don't have the staff to Uh, Supervised charters. So charters are basically, uh, they take the money and and nobody oversees them. And the only way that scandals are revealed is when there's a whistleblower.
3: Talk a little bit about the impact, the overall impact you see this having in terms of accountability. You know, we've talked for so long in this country about testing, about accountability, about measurement, about metrics in education. This debate's been going on for a long time. How do you see that playing out within the context of all that we've been talking about?
11: Well, just before the election, Congress passed a new law to replace No Child Left Behind called the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, I mean, I have a big problem with this whole idea that this federal government is in charge of accountability because they're very distant from the schools and they frankly don't know what they're talking about. So they're always looking for some kind of a a measurement tool and they fall back on what's available, which is standardized tests. Uh, I have had a lot of experience uh, overseeing standardized testing because I was for seven years on the uh, what's called the National Assessment Governing Board. Now that's a federal uh, entity that cre- that o- supervises uh, the NAEP. NAEP is the national test that's given every two years. So I've I've had a lot of familiarity with testing, and I came to feel very. Dubious about the value of these tests when they're used for anything other than sampling. Uh, the v- virtue of the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, is that it's given every two years and reading and in math, and it's like it's like a dipstick. You you don't check your you don't use your dipstick every single day on your core unless it's a in terrible trouble. But you you periodically, if, if dipsticks even exist anymore, and I'm not, not even sure about that, but you periodically do a sampling to see how things are going. I think that uh, what makes sense is to stop testing every child every year. There's no other country in the world that does this. Uh, but Congress uh, could not give up on the no child left behind idea of testing every child every year. And so the new law, uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act, Uh, will mean every child will be tested every year from grades three through eight in reading and in math, and then the states are required to identify their lowest 5% of schools and to take some kind of dramatic action. Now, all of this is still, frankly, an extension of No Child Left Behind, which failed miserably. Uh, We've seen uh, not only very little progress over these past 15 years of constant measurement, uh, but the last time that the um, NAEP was given, the National Assessment Test was given, uh, scores actually went flat for the first time in about 20 years. And states were not making progress because all this testing takes away time from instruction. The way that kids learn is if they're taught, not not they don't learn because they're tested, they learn because they're taught. And I would like to see less testing and more teaching. Uh, but that's not what federal law says. Federal law says you will continue the testing. Uh, and all this emphasis on testing and measurement and metrics and data and accountability has produced nothing. Um, and there was a report that just came out yesterday, actually, yesterday afternoon, which I put on my blog this morning. Uh, Mathematical Policy Research, which is an independent research agency, was commissioned by the federal government to evaluate one of its big programs, since, called the School Improvement Grants. This was three and a half billion dollars. We're not talking million. We're talking b billion. Three and a half billion dollars to uh, um, for testing, for firing teacher, firing uh, principals, reorganizing schools, punishing schools if they didn't meet the test scores, etc. And um, the study said that the This $3.5 billion had zero effect on student achievement, zero. So I think that all of this data-driven testing uh, has no impact other than to destroy the arts, uh, eliminate physical education, uh, reduce, uh, reduce the teaching of science and history and civics, and distort education. Uh, and I, I, I look forward to the day, which won't be coming soon, but someday we'll have better leadership in, in Washington that will understand that all of these incentives have been counterproductive, that they were driving people away from the teaching profession. Uh, we're not getting the best people coming in because the best people are leaving uh, because they're sick of being judged by these stupid standardized test scores.
3: And finally, Diane, what should parents be on the lookout for in this kind of environment that we're about to go into?
11: I think that what parents need to do is to go to their schools and say, you know what really matters to me is that our ch- my child has adequate time for the arts. I want my child to come to school not to be tested, but to learn to play an instrument, to sing in a chorus, uh, to uh, join a band. Uh, to, to paint, to to do sculpture, to learn to use the computer to do creative things. I think that parents should insist upon all the activities in school that lead to healthy and happy and fulfilled children, that give children joy. I mean, I think that what's really crucial is to forget about the test scores and focus on the joy of learning. And everything the federal government doing is doing and has been doing now for 15 or 16 years has been uh, well has the effect of squashing the joy of learning and this is a great country we have wonderful public schools despite all the lies you hear in the media and support your public schools, support your teachers and encourage them to give children time to play um read uh, Pasi salberg's wonderful book finnish lessons and learn about how finland became one of the best education systems in the world Not by testing, but by focusing on creativity and the arts and the joy of learning. It really works.
0: We just heard clips today starting with The David Pakman Show discussing the way Betsy DeVos bought her way to power. Off-Kilter talked about what voucher programs do to impoverished and disabled children. Last Week Tonight took a look at some of the ways charter schools can go wrong. Making Contact examined some of the history of education policies and their purposes. The Tom Hartman program looked back at a Reagan-era prediction about the destruction of public education. Our activism for today is in opposition to any forthcoming legislation that guts and privatizes public education. And finally, we just heard Who, What, Why speaking with Diane Ravage about the potential damage that can be done by Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you.
3: Hey, thanks so much for your show. I listened to the last show about the alternative to ACA and what the progressives should be doing now. I'm a psychiatrist working in a community setting here in Southern Colorado. I strongly propose that we try to get the ACA to have a government option. Also expand Medicaid, expand Medicare. I always see ACA not as a perfect Plan, but it's something that is a progression towards a better plan, which is single-payer health care. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
12: Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in regarding your last uh, request for feedback on health care, to fix it, to not fix it. My gut feeling is if you fix something and put Band-Aids on something, it becomes not as bad. And then is less likely to make any change because, well, it's it's okay. It's not the best, but it's okay now. So I've always kind of been of the feeling that I'm willing to suffer a little bit more and go through trials and tribulations to be able to get and do the right thing. Do it once, do it right. And to that effect, there is a campaign in New York to get um, healthcare reformed. And I don't know if people are aware about this or not, but you can find out more through nyhcampaign.org. Obviously, I said I'm not in New York, but it's an interesting concept without insurance companies. And it's uh, basically a single payer system. And if we could get something like that passed in New York and then California, then obviously we could get it um, nationwide, I would think. So that's where I would put my energies into, into doing it once and doing it right. Thanks for all you do. Stay awesome.
2: Hey, Jay, this is Evan from Texas, and uh, this is my second time calling in, so I wanted to touch back on the first time I called. I was the guy whose friend uh, had the wife who was trying to immigrate from Iran when the whole travel ban fiasco was going on. Well, I just wanted to bring up the good news. Thanks to the work of the courts and the hard work of countless other people, she was able to get a visa and arrived here in the U.S. the same evening that Trump's second travel ban was supposed to take effect, but thankfully that was also overturned by the courts. So uh, there's just a little good news uh, in trying times that uh, can make us smile every day. So I was calling to answer your question from Friday show about whether we should be pushing to kind of give Obamacare a fix. And my answer is absolutely yes. Uh, as progressives, we should look at Obamacare as a step towards single payer, not as a counter argument to it. Because, I mean, you were saying that we should be having – single-payer 20 years ago. Hell, we should be having it since almost 70 years ago with Truman. But since then, we've taken steps towards single-payer health care, such as passing Medicare and Medicaid. And you can say the same thing about Obamacare, because it did things like expand Medicaid for people in states where they had allowed the expansion to take place. So that's just my two cents. Absolutely, we should fix Obamacare uh, to the best, because I'm fairly confident that that's not going to just for long and there's still systemic issues and i'm fairly confident that within the near future we will have single-payer health care i don't know how long it will take but i hope to see it before i die at least that would be fantastic but we're going to get there eventually uh we just have to work for it thanks jay
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So we got some interesting voicemails about where to go from here on health insurance. And, uh, you know, so we had a couple of people who were more or less in agreement that the ACA is a stepping stone to a single payer. And then a third who sort of reiterated what I was saying in the last episode about how if you patch up a flawed system, that it might, I mean, you run the risk at least of taking the energy away from really overturning that system entirely. But I want to throw in one other perspective that is an old perspective. I certainly didn't come up with it. That, but it wasn't displayed in any, any of those messages or or any others I got. And this argument goes back to the original discussion about the ACA before it passed the first time, which is that if you mandate that people buy health insurance from private insurance companies, which is a whole other argument that you know, we could have a different discussion about, but if you mandate that and just assume that that's how the system's going to work, then what you're doing is you're actually driving more money and more customers into the hands of the exact industry who will fight the hardest against single-payer. You are further entrenching the moneyed interests that will fight you the hardest in the future when you try to take that next step, if you will. If you see the ACA as a step towards single-payer, just understand that you are actually strengthening your enemy on the path towards your ultimate goal, where you will have to face off against that enemy. So the major argument back in the day was, if you don't have a public option, then this entire system is built on a house of cards, and you are just giving more money to the insurance industry. And yes, it'll be better than the old status quo because more people will be covered, but it will be so fundamentally flawed that it will inevitably collapse in the long run. If you have a public option, then that turns the tables entirely. So, yes, yeah, so maybe maybe we're going to relitigate that argument now. Although, again, live as I'm talking, I just saw today that the Republicans actually are going to try again with health care. So, you know, we'll see. But continuing this sort of thought experiment, maybe the argument we're going to have now is, okay, so the system is very flawed, uh, the Republicans shot a bunch of holes in it, and so it was a flawed system that has now been sort of mortally wounded on purpose by the Republicans who didn't like it in the first place and tried to do everything they could to hurt it, which is what they always do. They take legislation, whether good, bad, or somewhere in the middle, and intentionally make it worse in the hopes that it will fail so that they can say, look, see, Democrats pass some legislation that's failed and it's bad and we should replace it with something worse. That's that's their M.O. So we have this fatally flawed system. And maybe the right solution for that in the meantime is to have a public option. But I think that we, again, should go all the way back to the original conversation to decide how we talk about this and how we debate this issue right now. Originally, there were a lot of people, including me, saying, if you want a public option, you should demand single-payer Demand single-payer now, and maybe you negotiate your way to a public option. But what happened was we immediately discarded single-payer and then demanded a public option and negotiated from there and then lost that. We negotiated away the public option and ended up with the pro-corporate, fatally flawed system we ended up with. So now, if what you want is a public option right now, and you think that that is the stopgap measure that should be implemented right now, I think you should demand single-payer right now. Not only does that keep our eye on what we ultimately want and begin the messaging for what progressives need to campaign on in future elections, but if you demand single-payer now, it increases the chances that you can at least negotiate to a public option. So, keep the comments coming in on that or anything else. The number again, 202 999 3991. And just a quick reminder before I go the Credo Mobile is the only progressive phone company out there that lets you make the world a better place every time you use your phone. Because every time you pay your phone bill, they take a portion of those profits and give it to fantastic organizations you already know and love Social Security Works, Amnesty International USA, Wellstone Action. And of course, they've been Planned Parenthood's top corporate donor for years. Plus, they're coverage is dependable and it's easy to switch because you can keep your existing number when you come over. It's a better world for all of us and a better way to stay connected to it. So go to credomobile.com slash bestoftheleft or call 800-654-3182 to get two smartphones for free plus 50% off unlimited talk and text. That's credomobile.com slash bestoftheleft. And as always, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode—
1: i